coming up next. WAMC's Alan Shartalk in an encore conversation with Dr. Amy Bass, a professor of history and director of the honors program at New Rochelle College and the author of the book One Goal, a coach, a team, and the game that brought a divided town together. An inspiring conversation. It's up next. WAMC's Alan Shartalk, Dr. Amy Bass, and the book One Goal, next on WAMC. This is Alan Chartok, delighted to be in conversation today with Dr. Amy Bass, an author, director of the Honors Program, and professor of history at the College of New Rochelle in New York. The daughter of two noted journalists who I know, Dr. Bass was born and raised in New England, in Richmond, right next to Great Barrington. Dr. Bass earned a Ph.D. with distinction from Stony Brook University, a master's from Stony Brook, and a bachelor's degree from Bates College in Maine. Dr. Bass's research interests include African-American history and modern American culture with a particular focus on sports, identity politics, and historical theory and methodology. In addition to her academic work, she's written about sport and politics for Slate, Salon, The All-Arounder, and CNN Opinion. She hosts a weekly radio show, Conversations with Amy Bass, on WVOX. We know that station well. In television, she served as senior research supervisor for NBC Olympic Sports across eight Olympic Games, winning an Emmy Award for her work at the London Olympics in 2012. But Dr. Amy Bass joins us today to talk about her fourth book. She's a great author. One Goal, A Coach, A Team, and the Game That Brought a Divided Town Together from Hachette Books. Welcome, Amy Bass. Thank you, Alan. It's great to be here. The book, One Goal, A Coach, A Team, and a Game That Brought a Divided Town Together. Let's pretend I hadn't read the book. What would the book be about? The book is this impossibly local story in Lewiston, Maine, about a soccer team's quest for the school's first championship title in soccer. And the interesting thing about this team is that all but one of the starters on its varsity roster are African immigrants, um, most of whom are Somali refugees, playing for a coach who's in his fourth decade of teaching and coaching, Lewiston born and bred. And it's the story about this team coming together in this town that has experienced this unusual migration influx, immigration influx of Somali refugees, and setting an example for the community to follow. So how did Amy Bass, daughter of Milty and Ruth, get involved in this? So I am a proud graduate of Bates College, which is in of Lewiston, course. Maine. Yes. Yeah. Pay attention to your social media, kids, because an article, a tiny article posted by a friend who still lives in Maine, landed on my Facebook newsfeed in November of 2015. And I thought, there's something here. So I wrote about 900 words for CNN, and it went pretty viral. It went so viral that USA Today actually wrote an article about the article, and an editor came calling and said, have you, have you thought about writing a book? And I, I said, you know, I, I haven't thought about much else for the last 48 hours, and off we went. So, Amy, who's the star of the book? You know, it's a team, so I'm going to go sort of old-school sports. There's no I in team. There's some really important folks to talk about. There's star players on this roster, you know, the goalie Austin Wing, whose family has been in Lewiston, Maine, for generations, French-Canadian immigration background. And then there's Avdi H., who is probably the greatest soccer player ever to come out of the state of Maine, who, who came to Lewiston, you know, via a refugee camp in Kenya with his Somali parents. There's coach Mike McGraw, who, who's in his 33rd year of coaching this team when they begin this quest in 2015. And, and there's community members who, you know, are, are there to support the kids and the refugees, including the refugees themselves. People like my friend now, Abdi Kadir Negi, who is one of the founders of this community organization that creates homework help and youth soccer teams in order to, to make sure that kids are on the right track and succeeding. So, Amy, when the Somalis started to come to Maine, were they welcomed with the open arms? It's been what I call a fragile detente. It's got an ebb and, ebb and flow to it. You know, they came a couple families in 2001, and those couple families 
talked to other families. This is what we call a secondary relocation. It's Lewiston isn't where they landed coming, you know, off of an airplane from, from Africa. And word of mouth just spread. So within about a decade's time, we're talking about 7,000 immigrants landing in a city of about 36,000 people. So it has definitely had its, its rough moments. In the early days, one of Lewiston's mayors actually wrote an open letter to the community saying, okay, you're here and we're supporting you, but no more. Tell your uncles and your sisters and your friends not to come because we're tapped. And that was actually an interesting moment because on the one hand, the Somali community came together and said, that's not right, that's not fair. We're we're here to stay and we're here to help this community and be parts of this community. But it really was a coming together. It was a coming together where people sort of said, this is who we are and, and this is our identity and, and we have to figure out how to move forward together. So when they arrived, how did it come to be that these people were to be included? Let's face it, soccer has not really caught on in America the way that it has internationally. Is that part of the story? Well, you know, Lewiston is a championship hockey town. It's a championship cheerleading town, and it's in Maine. So I think that one of the first things that catches everyone's attention about this story is, you know, what is it like for there to be a large Somali community in Maine? And this hockey town, you know, it's not really a story about soccer replacing hockey, but it's about soccer being there with hockey, about hockey and soccer. So Coach Mike McGraw had to sort of redesign the way he thought about soccer in this town. Because you're right, it's a very international game. It, it's an enormously popular game in the United States at the recreational and youth levels. And we're seeing historic numbers, you know, record-breaking numbers with each subsequent World Cup in terms of television ratings and what have you. So there is an enormous amount of interest. It's sort of the commercial interest. You know, it's not baseball. It's not basketball. But in Lewiston, Mike McGraw suddenly had kids who prioritized soccer coming onto his high school roster, that these weren't kids from his old days when, you know, you tried out for the soccer team and you knew you were going to make the team and you were doing it to get in shape for something else, right, your real sport. Now he had players who play soccer all day, every day, 12 months a year. I mean, these are kids that as soon as the parking lot of the Androscoggin Colisee, which is the hockey arena in Lewiston, it's the first parking lot to be plowed for obvious reasons, these kids grab their soccer balls and put on a parka and go kick the ball around between the snowbanks. That's amazing. That's amazing. So, you know, we have seen moving picture after moving picture of something that happens like this where a town comes together or a team comes together. Tell us the story. You know, it's interesting. We talk about immigration being at the core of, of America's story, the, the sort of, you know, pull yourself up by the bootstraps and where are your parents from and how many generations. And we talk about melting pot a lot and, and assimilation and Americanization. And, and this story is interesting because Lewiston, you see a negotiation. You see a Somali community that is working and living and raising families in Lewiston and filling schools and, and raising actually the graduation rates at the high school. And you see Somali food and Somali culture. You see small businesses in a downtown that, you know, had been hard hit by the bottom falling out of the textile industry, which is what Lewiston's core was until the World Wars, when the entire, you know, all of New England sort of experienced that sunk of economic repression and depression because of, of the loss of the textile factories moving south and, and abroad. So you see fitting in, but you see negotiation. It's, it's not a melting pot. There is a distinctive Somali culture there. And there's give and take from both sides. So it's, it's really an incredible story in that, you know, you have, again, this city of, of 36, 37,000 people having this rapid influx of a population that is putting down roots and it's there to stay, which is Lewiston needed that. Maine as a state needs that. Maine is, Maine is losing folks and, you know, to attract industry, to attract business, you need to have labor. And so the foreign-born and now the American-born of the foreign-born are, are really providing that. So it's been an enormous transformation for this city. So now there's a question about a high school, which is now absorbing both the domestic people who, who attend and, and the Somali kids. And how does that work out? You know, there's growing pains and there's accommodations that need to be made. Lewiston High School is about 25% immigrant at this point. That's um, a lot. It is a lot. And they graduated higher rates than, you know, longtime Mainers. There's such an emphasis on education in the Somali community. It's, it's very interesting. 
the high school has to think about things, um, you know, accommodating students that have particular dietary restrictions, you know, labeling things in the cafeteria so that... Like what? No pork? pork. Yeah. Pork needs to be labeled. Pork is haram in Islam, which means forbidden. So, you know, switching your bologna to beef is something that a school system needs to do if, you know, 25% of your student body isn't going to be able to eat that. Talking to the athletic director, Jason Fuller, who's, who's really an amazing character in this book, things like athletes who are playing and practicing during Ramadan, right? They're not eating, they're not drinking, and how do you accommodate athletes like that? And, and Jason Fuller's response to that always is, there are athletes, we will accommodate them, we will make them work. So when Ramadan hits summer season, you know, they're playing summer soccer, You've got players who are playing at 6 o'clock in, in July on a hot day who, who probably haven't had anything to eat since 3 a.m. or anything to drink, and their prayer rugs are in their, their soccer bags. And this team figures out how to accommodate that. I mean, Coach McGraw talks about when Ramadan happens during the season, which, you know, Ramadan shifts, that, you know, at halftime, the sun would go down and parents would bring food to the sidelines. And his response was, you eat. You eat when you need to eat. And, and that's a change for him to make accommodating kids who might be late to practice because they had to accompany a parent or a sibling to a doctor's appointment and serve as a translator. These are the kinds of things that a coach needs to accommodate because these are his athletes and and these are their needs and yet still understand that teams have rules and teams have standards and that teams have work ethics. So the name of the book is by Amy Bass, One Goal, A Coach, A Team, and the Game That Brought a Divided Town Together. Let's start with the coach. Mike McGraw is Lewiston born and bred been in Maine his whole life, played football for Lewiston High School, came back, started teaching. He's a biology teacher. He's been in the classroom 40-plus years, and he is a central beloved figure in this city. He is a coach. He is a father figure. He is a supporter. He's the guy, you know, at the pep rally who is leading the way. He's the guy in the, the high school yearbook that is, you know, always most spirited. He is that kind of a person. And these are the sorts of things that make him such a central figure to these kids, to this team. He's a leader. He is someone who brings kids together. And he really has a turning point with this team. About 2007, 2008, more and more of the Somali kids are are finding their way to tryouts, finding their way to a roster. And McGraw actually has an epiphany one day. He's walking to the practice field, you know, with his bag of balls that is, is always on his back. And he sees that the Somali kids and... And the other kids are getting ready separately, putting on socks and cleats and shin guards separately and talking, but talking separately. And he thinks to himself, this can't happen. This isn't how a team operates. And he thinks, you know, I I can do this. I'm a coach. I'm good at this. And he physically starts to pick kids up. And everyone tells this story. This story is legend in Lewiston. And say, you come over here. And you, Ali, you come here. Shobo, you come here. Johnny, you come here. And he moves them until they're together. And he gives them a speech, which is a speech that he gives them all the time about, about soccer, which is this game that is, you know, a team effort. It's, it's building. It's a, it's a game that builds long plays, and you have to move a ball together across an enormous amount of space. And he talks to them about, you know, you high-five each other in the hallway. And if you're going to the movies, you see who else wants to come along. And if you're going to a football game, I want you in your team jackets, and I want you visibly as a group um, And it was something that they were really waiting for. It was something that they talk about in retrospect as as being relieved because he gave them the opportunity. He gave them a path that allowed them to understand how they had to work together. When this book was being composed by you and written by you, was he astounded that he was going to be pretty famous as a result of this? That's very optimistic in terms of the book and its success. Oh, no, this is a great success. Yeah, go ahead. The team got a lot of attention along the way. The team has had, it was an interesting thing, because in their 2015 season, which is this historic season, this undefeated season, they outscore their opponents 114 to 7 in the 2015 season. It's just, you know, people in America who say, I don't like soccer because it's a low-scoring game. They've never seen Lewiston play because this is a team that wins by 14 or 15 points. It's a lot of goals. And so McGraw had attention that season from a lot of different places. They got some notice. They got nationally ranked, right? So suddenly they're in USA Today as a nationally ranked team. 
I think, the only one from Maine and, and one of just two or three from New England. So it was a team that had a lot of attention for a couple different reasons. They were playing a kind of soccer that, that Maine had just never seen before. They had this top 20 national ranking, and they had this roster that caught a lot of people's eyes. So he had some folks talking to him, and he thought for a while. I reached out to him. You know, we did the CNN piece, which was quick. And then I reached out to him and said, I, I kind of want to go deep. And he thought about it, and he should have thought about it, because I was asking a lot. I was asking for access. I mean, you know, flash forward a year, I'm sitting in the locker room thinking, I, I can't quite believe I'm here. Did you establish relationships with each of the players, or how did that work? Yeah, most of the players. You know, it was interesting because I created, as you should do and as you know, you're know, you taught to do, I created a research agenda. And I thought, these are the people I want to interview and these are the locations I want to see. And I did do those interviews. But I also threw a lot of my game plan out the window because one of the things that I realized was that I needed to just be in Lewiston. I needed to be there. I needed to be visible. I needed people to feel comfortable to come up to me and talk to me and tell me their stories. So it wasn't just I'm going to go to a lot of soccer games and then I'm going to have you, you, and you sit down. It was I'm going to go to the youth track practice today and sit in the bleachers and talk to some of the families and, and watch some of the soccer players' sisters run. I'm going to go to the football games on Friday night. I shadowed McGraw's bio class a lot, which meant I was in high school all day, every day. I started calling it the art of hanging out as a research method because I just needed to be there. And relationships grew, and I felt really honored that I was trusted with these stories because these are stories, you know, that the kids would talk about their time in Dadaab, which is, you know, the largest refugee settlement in the world. It's in Kenya. And those who grew up there and remembering their stories of being in Dadaab, remembering their stories of, of coming to the United States and what the vetting process was like as refugees, thinking about stuff like that and sharing stories about that. You know, I was... I was invited into their homes, breaking fast with them at Ramadan and, and learning about food. And I was taught all the time, you know, how do you pronounce this? What would you say about this? What do you call this? And they were incredibly generous and incredibly trusting. And those relationships grew. And, and from those relationships, the cast of characters sort of found their way. I have five different roads I could go down here, but I want to go down the one you just raised with us, which is that these folks and these kids and their parents I had a rough time. Tell us about that. Mm -hmm. There's some stories. It's interesting. If, if you first ask, you know, what was it like? And I, I guess this is kind of a stupid, superficial question, and it's not a place you should start. What was it like in the refugee camp? Almost to a person, all of the guys would say it was nice. And I learned that nice was sort of a cover word, that there was a lot behind the word nice, that there's things that they don't remember. There's things that they remember because people have told them about it. And then there's stuff that they remember and they don't want to talk about. You know, there's some 60 million refugees in the world right now. There's a nation full of refugees, if you, if you look at numbers. And so, you know, it was the struggle for some of leaving Somalia, fleeing Somalia, as it was being racked by civil war and by famine and by drought and by takeovers and factions and wars, you know, wars within wars. It was getting family, whoever was strong enough to do it over the Kenyan border. And then it was surviving in a refugee camp, which is a tough thing. I'm not doing it justice by saying that. But the mm -hmm. memories, and, and some of them, Abdi Kadir Negi, who is now a community leader in, in Lewiston, he's part of a group called Maine, Maine Immigrant and Refugee Services, which is just doing amazing work for the immigrant community in Lewiston. Abdi Kadir Negi spent almost two decades, right? He grew up in a refugee camp in Kenya before finally getting to an Atlanta suburb and then getting on a bus blind almost and, and going to Lewiston because it's where people said that they should go. So it puts a lot into perspective, thinking about what's important and what's important is family and then what you want for your family, which, which is you know education and security and safety. Do they play soccer in the camp? They do play soccer. Soccer and volleyball are the two big sports in the camps because they're simple, but they don't play soccer the way that they play soccer in Lewiston necessarily. So Malid Abdo, who is one of the stars of the book and, and is famous because of his stunning ability to do what's called a front handspring flip throw-in, in which instead of just throwing a ball back into play over your head, which is the way 99.9% .9 of all soccer players do it, Malid actually takes a running start, puts the ball down, flips over, and then propels the ball coming out of a front handspring. So Malid grew up 
playing soccer in two different refugee camps, but they didn't have balls and they didn't have cleats and they didn't have shin guards. They would wad up material and plastic and sort of make a makeshift ball, wrap it all tight in cloth and play barefoot in the sand. And there's actually a picture of one camp in Kenya of boys playing soccer sort of in the horizon. It's a beautiful picture that was taken actually by another Berkshire local, Stash Wazlaki, who had done some work there and generously gave me some of his photos. So when Malid's in Lewiston, you know, his father is a rabid soccer fan. He's playing with his brother. They're in one of the parks. And the idea, you know, putting on cleats, putting on shin guards, putting on a ball, having an organized game with time, it was a different kind of soccer. But there were these youth leagues that were largely, you know, they were, there were Lewiston youth leagues, there were Somali-run youth leagues. And these coaches, these volunteers, people like Abdi Qadir, you know, taught kids like Malid about the regulation game. That said... The best games to watch in Lewiston, and, and as much as I love the Lewiston Blue Devils, and I, I cheer for them as hard as I cheer for the Red Sox, are the pickup games. They play these raucous, amazing 30, 35 people on a side pickup games in the parks that are just joy to watch because there aren't referees making calls and calling penalties and there's celebration and, you know, defenders are scoring goals and goalies are, are running. So there's all different kinds of soccer that, that these guys are playing. And, and some of it is still very much rooted in the, the games that they played when they would, you know, sort of hide from, they talk about hiding from police and skipping school to play soccer in the alleys or in the fields. So teach us all a little bit, Amy uh, Bass, about the way in which soccer is structured. You just gave us a hint. You talked mm-hmm. about defenders, for example. Now, you know, in baseball, you're a first baseman or a second baseman, that kind of thing. Do people have positions in soccer? Absolutely. There's offense and defense, and then sort of in between those things, there are midfielders, and midfielders can go in a couple different directions. There are midfielders who are very attack-minded, so they are going to create killer plays and score more than midfielders who are more defense-minded, who are going to hang near the box, the goal. You know, there's the back line, which Lewiston's back line, again, in 2015, only let seven goals through the net. There is the goalie who is calling plays. He's the eyes and ears of the team because he has the whole field in front of him. Um, there are the strike who are that front line who are scoring um, and it's it's interesting because Lewiston changed the way it played soccer as these kids began to fill the rosters um, in the old days of Lewiston soccer it was very much what's called a direct game um, which is kick and chase or or more colloquially called boot and scoot in which you kick the ball as far as you can and everybody runs as hard as they can to get to it, and then you kick it again, and you're just moving the ball down the field. That changed because the skills that these kids who play all day, every day, changed it to what's called a possession game. And possession soccer is really what we call the beautiful game. It isn't about one guy kicking it as far as he can and getting it down the field. You move the ball laterally, horizontally, backwards sometimes. It's not about distance. It goes, it's, it's one or two touches, right? per person until the ball moves to the next person and it's fast and it's hard to defend and it moves the ball with everybody together in concert getting it to where it needs to be it's a very unselfish way to play soccer it's a highly skilled way to play soccer and it's the way lewiston plays soccer we're talking to Amy Bass. The name of the book is One Goal, a Coach, a Team, and the Game that Brought a Divided Town Together. Okay, so Amy, let's talk a little bit about that divided town. What was that all about? You know, Lewiston has a really interesting history. It has an immigrant history in that it was a textile center. It was a retail center, I think the largest retail center outside of Boston for a long time in New England. And if you go there, you see red brick factory outlines and and smokestacks. The Bates Mill Complex, Benjamin Bates, was one of the key capitalist entrepreneurs in the 19th century. Uh, who laid the landscape for Lewiston as this textile center. And one of the key things about Benjamin Bates, who the college is named for, is that he sort of predicted the Civil War, and he purchased extra cotton before the war broke out, and sort of that stranglehold on the north was created. So Lewiston as a textile center, it was called Spindle City, thrived, not just survived the lean years of the mid-19th century, but, but thrived. But what that does is it created a need for labor, and that labor came from the north. It came from Canada. So Lewiston is lar- was largely settled by French-speaking Canadian immigrants that came on the Grand Trunk Railroad 
and lived in this textile town, overwhelmingly Catholic, French-speaking. French is still found in a lot of households in Lewiston. Um, the last French mass is held every Sunday in Lewiston. And this was Lewiston, hardworking factory folk, mill, mill workers. But the bottom falls out of that. And as the mills begin to close, which they do all throughout New England, Lewiston's economic base is in trouble. And that creates a lot of vacancy. And that vacancy is one of the things that makes it a prime place for an immigrant community, a new immigrant community to move in. There's lots of low rent, empty apartments, decent schools, good schools, and a pretty safe place. And that's how word of mouth really sort of inspires this Somali migration into town. That said, it's, it's tough. You have a very different population moving in to live next to a very entrenched population. So this overwhelmingly white, overwhelmingly Catholic town is suddenly filled with a percentage of foreign-born Muslim practicing. Islam is a center in the Somali community. And there are myths and stereotypes that just begin to soar, as, as often happens. And I think lots of towns, we know this. For example. Lots of towns have this kind of racial animosity that's, that's always sort of simmering below the surface. So, for example, Amy, in terms of myths, what kind of myths? You know, assumptions that these immigrants couldn't be affording apartments on their own, that, of course, they, you know, assumptions and stereotypes that they don't work. So, you know, the city or the state or the government is, is writing checks for them and buying cars for them, and they're ruining apartments by keeping chickens in their kitchen cabinets, and just these myths and stereotypes swirling and swirling and swirling. And one of the statistics that really sticks out to me is that... This immigrant population forms, again, about 25% of the high school, but over 70% of the high school is on free or reduced rate lunch and breakfast. And this is something that the, that the school administration will cite to say Lewiston has dealt with, you know, what we call intergenerational white poverty for generations, for, for decades. And so it isn't about a draining of city coffers or state coffers. And looking at how the city administration has to deal with it, how the school administration, you know, how do you accommodate new kinds of parents who you might think, all right, well, we'll get everything translated into Somali and then we'll send everything home in English, French, and Somali. But maybe the Somali population is a low literacy population, that they're not reading. Even if it's in Somali, they're still not reading. So all of these different kinds of accommodations and stereotypes needed to be dealt with. And there's an ebb and flow to that. Sometimes it goes really, really well, and these enormous strides are made, and sometimes there's setbacks. You know, you mentioned that not only was soccer a game in the camps, you said volleyball was also. So doesn't the high school have a, a volleyball team? Soccer's the passion. Soccer is first and foremost. Soccer is morning, noon, and night, all right. day, every day. And how about women? Don't yeah, the, um, it's yeah. interesting because I always use the parallel that in the United States, the sport of field hockey, which internationally is a very popular sport, and in the Olympics, men and women play. And in the United States, it's very rarely a sport um, that's in boys' programs in prep school or in high school. It's, it's, field hockey is, a, is assumed to be a girls' sport. Um, so there's a cultural thing in America about field hockey being a girls' sport. And in Somali culture, soccer is almost completely played by boys. There is, There are some youth teams um, fielded by folks like the Maine Immigrant and Refugee Services. There are teams for girls. Um, girls definitely run out onto the, onto the field at halftime and kick a ball around um, while the teams are in their huddles. But you, you, where you do see girls excelling athletically, and what I witnessed was on, on the track running, and their youth recreational team, Lewiston's youth recreational team, and I went to a lot of their meets, and they were they were a relatively small team compared to the other teams, and they didn't have, you know, fancy tents and food bars and things that parents and what have you had set up for them. And they were breaking, their relay teams were breaking state records left and right. They were lightning on the track. So girls running is, is something that Lewiston sees a lot of. Lewiston, if you said to, you know, a population general quiz, what's the most famous thing that ever happened in Lewiston? What would it be? Muhammad Ali had his had without his, question. Yeah, had his fight there. I mean, honestly, I think you know. Look, I write about Muhammad Ali in the book. The details are there. You know, it was a fight that was supposed to take place in Boston. It's the fight of the Phantom Punch, and I think that this story, you know, now sits right next to it. But what is now the Androscoggin Coliseum is 
Absolutely. What happened in spring of 1963. And it was, a, it was basically a fight that no other city wanted. It was a fight that had gotten delayed because Ali had had a, a medical issue. And it took place at, the, at what is now the Colisee in a hockey rink. Um, didn't fill up. And it's, it's just that, that crazy moment. That's, you know, that famous, famous photo of Sonny Liston flat on his back uh, looking up and, you know, people claiming they never saw it happen. Do you think there's any connection between the Somali excelling and the Ali fight, or is it too much of a reach? I don't. Well, you know, it's interesting because when, you know, years and years ago, when the when the mayor of Lewiston, the then mayor of Lewiston, wrote wrote the open letter asking Somalis to stop coming, and I said there was this real coming together, and and this group that called themselves Many in One um, held this enormous rally that took place at Bates College, and. Muhammad Ali sent a letter and and said, you know, this is a fight. Like, a, you know, I had a fight in Lewiston, and now these folks have a fight in Lewiston, and I, I support my brothers and sisters. Um, it, was a, it was a nice full circle, I think, more than a cause and effect. Who got Ali to send the letter? Do we have any I idea? don't know. It came, it came from his center, and so it was, it was read. There were, there were lots of dignitaries there. I mean, you know, it's interesting. You look at, you look at a state like Maine. Again, you know, has a declining population, has an old population. You know, it's, it's average age. It's older than Florida, um, second whitest state in America. And, and you think, you know, look at who its, who its political actors are. And, and there's some really interesting folks in Maine in, in terms of, you know, Olympia Snow and, and Susan Collins yep. and Angus, you know, Angus and, and you know, the, the idea of independence with Angus King. Um, so when you have a rally like the Many in One rally happened in support of, of the Somali community years ago, you have some big players there. Okay, so you're making the movie, Amy Bass, of one goal, <laughs> a coach team, and the game that brought a divided town together. Obviously, there's the tear-jerking part of it, which will be when they win the championship. Is there a culminating scene in all of this? You know, there's a quiet scene. It's amazing to me how many people, first of all, it's amazing to me how many people when I interview them cry when they talk about this story. <laughs> it's a very emotional story for people. And it's, you know, it's, it's the good parts that people are crying over. It's the, it's the happy, the heartwarming. But it, it also amazes me how many people talk about crying when they read it in that sort of penultimate chapter. There's a moment when one of the alumni players who's back in the community, he left the community, his name is Shobo, he left the community and went to Assumption College and graduated and then came back to Lewiston and he now works for Maine Immigrant and Refugee Services and is giving back. He, he likes to say that he lives his thank you to Lewiston. And he was in the stands, he was a rock star player from McGraw back in 2007, 2008. And he was there, and he, he had gassed up a bunch of cars and, and, you know, got kids down there to Portland for the game, and, and it was really important. He wanted them all to be able to bear witness. And Shobo really has this moment of looking around and thinking, you know, this is we, that, that we don't get a lot of we moments. But watching, watching the game, watching the love is pretty much what he talks about. It, it wipes away the stereotypes for that moment. And he said, you know, he's standing there, and he's not a pirate, which is something people assume about Somalia. And he's not a terrorist. And he's not a drug dealer. He's a soccer player. And he's watching this community. And everybody's there. Alan, there were 4,500 people at that state championship in November 2015. It's the biggest crowd to assemble for soccer in Maine ever. And, and that means that it wasn't just the parents of the kids on the field or the friends of the kids on the field. It was everybody. Everybody was there. And Shobo talking about it as this we moment, I think, you know, it's, it's a quiet moment. It's not a goal and it's not what have you, but I, I, think it's, I think it's the most special moment of that game. So I wanted to ask you about Coach. Yeah. Obviously, this group of kids show up and Coach has now got to get them to play. Mm -hmm. But they're playing their way and he had the old way that you've described already. Who ends up coaching the team? Well, it's interesting because coaches are coaches and coaches are in charge. And I think it speaks volumes as to what kind of person Mike McGraw is, that he makes some changes. He makes changes in a lot of different ways. One of the things he realizes he has to do is listen to these kids, that it isn't just him barking orders anymore. He needs to hear their feedback. He needs to take in what they think. 
you know, they play all the time. They play in all of these different leagues. So they have, they have perspective on other players that he needs to listen to because they're constantly scouting. They are watching English Premier League all the time, studying the game. You know, they, they're constantly replicating moves that they see in the EPL, which is some of the funnier parts in the book when they bring him to the field. So he's got that. He also has an assistant coaching squad that is very much part of this story. His defensive coach, Dan Gish, is someone who comes from a possession soccer background, not a boot and scoot, not a kick and chase. And they will say, you know, we had a lot of words about this, where where Gish talks about what kind of soccer he wanted to coach. And McGraw is always learning. He's a student. And it's an amazing thing. He's always teaching. He's always listening. He's always learning. And I think it's a very special kind of coach that does that. So Dan Gish has an enormous influence on how to utilize the skills of this team to capitalize on what these players are bringing. The other amazing component of that is Abdi Jabbar Hersey. And Abdi Jabbar Hersey comes on as an assistant coach. Um, he is the first Somali coach hired by Lewiston Athletics. And he is the son of Abdullahi Abdi. And Abdullahi Abdi is really the father of soccer in the new age in Lewiston. He's the middle school coach, so he's the guy who's priming these kids, including his own sons, to come to McGraw ready. So Abdi Jabbar played for McGraw and then comes back as an assistant coach. And that's an amazing moment for this team because coach can now say something to Abdi Jabbar who can yell to the kids on the field in Somali, because they're talking in Somali and Arabic on the field. And that's a real weapon, because then your opponents have no idea what's going on. So Abdi Jabbar is, a, is an amazing addition to this team. He's, a, he's an incredible soccer player himself. He becomes the freshman coach. So he's taking, you know, his father, Abdullahi, coaches the eighth graders. The eighth graders come to Abdi Jabbar in the ninth grade squad, and, the, and some of them make varsity right away. Um, right now, one of, one of McGraw's great players is Bilal Hersey, who is Abdi Jabbar's little brother. And you, you have this really strong setup, and McGraw understood that. He, he talks about, you know, I knew I had to go into the community. I had to talk about who these guys are playing with and who these guys are playing for. And I think it speaks volumes to both his head and his heart that so, this happens. So how come the premier colleges that do soccer – don't grab McGraw and say, um, we want you to do it here, what you did there. I mean, I think you'd have to ask him that, but Mike McGraw loves what he does. Mike McGraw is a guy who is up before the sun without an alarm clock. He loves teaching, he loves coaching, and he loves Lewiston, and he loves Maine. You know, he's, again, he's someone who gets up without an alarm. Okay, so, you know, at the end of the movie, they always show you what has happened to the various players, you know, later on, one went on to be a Supreme Court justice and one went on to... What can you tell us about what has happened to some of these players? So some of them, like Shobo, went off to college and came back and are now working in the community. Right. Abdi H., who is the top-scoring soccer player in Lewiston history, is currently in the middle of his freshman year at the University of Massachusetts Lowell, which is a Division One soccer team. So he had his first season uh, with Lowell in the fall. Others are, I think the 2015 team graduated some 14 seniors, and I think all of them either went to community college college or they did a postgraduate year in prep school wow. um and one of the amazing things that you learn from being an athlete from being a really good athlete and being a student athlete and lewiston really emphasizes the student athlete part you know eligibility academic eligibility citizenship eligibility are very much an important part of what jason fuller as athletic director enforces with these guys it teaches discipline, and it teaches, you know, they have goals, and, and these guys are out there getting it. So let me go to a different place. Soccer is really an enigma in the United States. Um, you think about it. We got the baseball. We got the football. We got the basketball. And we got all of these kids, everybody, my kids, everybody else's kids goes out and plays soccer. How come that doesn't develop into the national sport that these other sports are? Well, you know— <laughs> You know, there's a, there's a lot going on right now with the men's national team having failed to qualify for the World Cup and the firing of, you know, Jurgen Kleinsmann and, and things like that. I think that where the United States grows its players from, 
you know, in terms of, of programs that are in the United States is, is something that needs to be relooked at, bringing in players versus, versus having these development programs. And the United States has development programs. It's just, I, you know, I think that these kids like these are hopefully the future of, of where the United States can go with this. Because you really can't say that soccer is not popular in the United States anymore. It's hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people playing every Saturday. And again, we're talking about tens of millions of people watching the World Cup. If you had told me 10 years ago that NBC Sports was going to have a contract with the English Premier League, I would have said you were crazy. But they do, and it does very well on NBCSN. You then also have to remember that in women's soccer, the United States has been a global power since the very first Women's World Cup. So, so when people say things like, well, the United States isn't very good at soccer, it's like, well, <laughs> the United States women are the best in the world and have had a strong program for a long time. And, and that's often been true of women's sports because they don't have the same professional outlets that men do. So the, you know, the body of, of who's on a team tends to be a little bit more elite. You know, the majority of, of medals that were just won in Pyeongchang were, um, for the U.S. squad were women. So I think there's a lot of things at play. It took a long time for American commercial television to figure out how to make a profit on a game that has no breaks. Soccer is a, is a game where you can't very easily modify to, to go out for 12 minutes of commercials. And, and these are changes that football and baseball both actually made to their games to make it more commercially viable after World War II. So soccer is a game without breaks. And it's a game that if you don't really understand the intricacies of it, mm. you think a, a lot of nothing happens for a long time. Mm. Because you do have games that end in ties, which drives Americans crazy. They want a winner or a loser. And you have games that might be one to two or something like that. Because it's, it's not necessarily about the scoring. And one of the things that I always say is, you know, if you took American football and you took away the amount of points that you get for a touchdown and a field goal, it too would be a very low-scoring game. So the low-scoring thing, the, the slow thing, the it's-nothing thing, I think that people need to learn how to watch soccer because, wow, their kids are playing it. And, you know, it's a huge sport. It just doesn't yet have the commercial cachet. Okay, so now let's talk about the R word a little bit. You know, you got white Maine and you got R word being race. Now you got the Somali kids coming in. Any reflections of tension over race? Well, yeah, it just, you know, it's interesting because some of the kids will say, like, it's so funny. In the United States, I'm not black. I'm Somali. That, that like, they'll talk about, you know, their black friends, meaning African-American. Um, so there's, there's interesting sort of divisions that are, that are made in terms of identity. But, but yes, of, of course there is racial divide as part of this conversation. I think that's true for any community. Um, and I think that, that in Lewiston it might feel more overt, especially for, I think, Somali women who, who don't necessarily have the same kind of flow into westernized dress as mm. some of the men do. But, you know, one of the, I remember one of, the, one of the young women saying to me, you know, if just one of us walks down the street – Someone might think that there's a hundred of us, that it just gets magnified because of sticking out like that. But they don't feel like they stick out anymore in a lot of ways. That said, you know, America had a, had a pretty significant turning point in November of 2016 mm -hmm. in, in terms of what's considered polite conversation and what isn't. And they feel that. They absolutely feel that. There is a tension. There is an anxiety in this America where the president of the United States might defend a white supremacist group, and they feel that. So when we talk about, you know, black players on a football field kneeling and taking the knee, we don't see any reflection of that here with the Somali community. I don't think any of them have taken a knee, but I think there's two major ways that sports are political, and, and I've certainly written about the overt politics. My first book is about the Mexico City Olympic Games in 1968 and the black power action that takes place there, which, you know, I have always said is when, when talking about people like Colin Kaepernick and taking a knee that, that Tommy Smith and John Carlos sort of wrote the blueprint for how to do this, you know, that sport is this amazing moment on a stage that most people don't have access to, and so they're utilizing that. But the other way to make political good out of your, your sports moment is performance. And this is something that McGraw talks to them about all the time, right? So we can say, you know, Jesse Owens in 1936 didn't do anything overtly political at the Olympic Games. But his performance 
right? His performance within that context of white supremacy and Adolf Hitler spoke volumes sure. without taking a knee. And that isn't to say that taking a knee isn't, isn't making its own hay in a really good way. But you look at this kind of stuff that McGraw talks about. When these kids are encountering trash talk or the N-word on the field or if things are getting a little bit rough, McGraw's motto is do not retaliate. The best way to retaliate is to put it up on the board, right? If you retaliate, the only thing that's going to happen is you're going to get a red card and you're going to be on the bench because they're going to call you on it. So just score, just beat them. And I think that that's really this team's way of, of dealing with a lot of this stuff. Can they always do it? No, because sometimes your emotions are going to take over and you're going to want to punch the kid back. But I think that their overarching thing is to tune it out, ignore it, and keep doing what you're doing because you do it better than they do anyway. Now, Amy Bass, you, of course, are an outstanding academic in addition to a very good writer. Uh, how much did your academic training help you to tell the story? Well, I mean, you know, it's my fourth book, and in so many ways it's my first book because it's narrative nonfiction and it's, it's not academic. And, you know, it was very much sort of thinking Friday Night Lights for the 21st century more than, than anything I had done before. But the academic training came in, I think, most importantly in terms of making sure that you substantiate everything that you want to talk about, everything that you want to write about. I think McGraw on more than one occasion has called me a bulldog in terms of my research uh, because – you want to dot every I and you want to cross every T. And I think that that is something that academia beats into you in a really good way. It's certainly something that I'm constantly talking to my students about, right? That if, yes, make that claim, but how are you going to substantiate that claim? So let me ask you this, Amy. Is there anything in the book that has ticked off any of the subjects? I'm sorry, that has... Ticked off any of the subjects, for want of a better Oh, angered. Yes. I mean, I guess we'll find out. So far, so good. (laughs) Right. You know, you're writing with an audience in mind, but you're not necessarily writing to please your characters. Sure. And I think that that's actually where some academic training comes in, is that you want to, you want to tell the story the way that the story needs to be told, the way the story should be told, and the way the story is. And I, I will say that putting the book into Mike McGraw's hands, I held my breath for a couple of days. Did you hear from him? I did. His, his reaction was more than I could have paid for. I mean, it was incredibly reassuring to have folks like McGraw, to have community members, uh, you know, someone in the community, very active in the Somali community, got a hold of the book and stayed up all night reading it. And I pretty much stayed up all night while she read it. And the next morning, um, just wrote one word in a, in a text, mashallah, which is, which is a, you know, a, an Islamic expression that was, you know, this is, it means this is good. God has willed this in a good way. And it was, it was the perfect word. I was thrilled. You know, that was, that was a burden to think, you know, this is an important story and, and I'm the one telling it and they're trusting me with this story. But I also need to do the story justice as, as I see it. And yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I'm, you can't please everybody, but you're also not writing to please anybody. So Amy, when you look at this work and you say, all right, what can come out of it? Is it that, you know, the farmer and the cowman can be friends, or is it a sociological study that gives us some hope? I hope that it provides time and space to think about what America can be when America takes a look at, at what we're supposed to be, right? I mean, we if you look at the America that's in the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution or what have you, the, you know, the, the story, our, the national character, the, the ethos of the United States, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing, but executing it is really hard. And we, we fail at it, I think, a lot. So if, if this book can just show, you know, that game, and, and it's sort of the subtitle, the game that, that brought, meaning the game of soccer, but also meaning that one specific game, right, where mm-hmm. for two hours... Several thousand people sat together and watched a team represent a city. And everyone got to see what it's like, right, to have that kind of a moment, you know, what Shobo called that we moment. And I hope it provides that kind of hope and and path forward that this stuff can happen. And it's tough. And there's, you know, is is it a solution? Is it done? Is Lewiston done? Absolutely not. But in terms of embracing difference and and overcoming odds and just thinking about humanity writ large, I think it's a great story that subscribes to all those things. So running really quickly towards the end, I got to ask you, those were great years as those teams came up. Does it continue? In other words, the Lewiston Blue Devils won another state championship this past fall, which created a literal stop the presses moment for us. The book was the production was seconds away from closing and they won again 
So suddenly I had about 30 hours to write 800 words of a postscript. Piece of change for you. Yes, piece piece of change, absolutely. And so there's a postscript now about the new generation rising. Well, Amy Bass wrote a great book, One Goal, A Coach, A Team, and the Game That Brought a Divided Town Together. Amy, thank you so much for spending all of this time with us. We very much appreciate it. And we certainly hope that when the next book and the one after that come out, we'll be able to interview about those two. Great. Thank you, Alan. listening to Dr. Alan Chartok, President and CEO of WAMC Northeast Public Radio and Professor Emeritus at the University at Albany. For more information on WAMC's In Conversation with Alan series or to order a physical copy, call 1-800-323-9262 or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or on the Google Play Store. Thank you.